Okay, did you bring your Bible? All right, very good. Acts chapter 24, if you would please. Acts chapter number 24. We'll get into the message here tonight from the Word of God. Acts chapter number 24. Ted's not here. I'm going to drink his water. So, Acts 24. (laughs) Okay, um, tonight the title, When Did Faith in Christ Become a Crime? When Did Faith in Christ? Can we say that about America? Unfortunately, and I don't have a lot of examples here tonight, but it wouldn't be very hard to track down how that faith in Christ in some ways has become like a crime, or at least there's some who have faced some type of repercussions for their faith in Christ, be it in a public school or in a workplace, um, something along those lines. It's, it's certainly the case. But you know tonight, here's the gist I, that I'd like for all of us to consider, is that your, tri- your faith in Christ is on trial. Your faith in Christ is on trial. And, and the world is watching. Your faith in Christ is on trial and the world is watching. Let's consider that as we consider Paul as he stands before man, a governor named Felix. So we join the account here in Acts, in Acts chapter 24 and verse number 1. And after five days, Ananias the high priest descended with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullus, who informed the governor against Paul. And when he was called forth, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying... Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence. He's pouring it on, isn't he? We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness, notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto thee, indicating he probably was being, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear us of thy clemency a few words. For we have found this man a pestilent fellow, a pest, Paul, a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout, all, throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, who also hath gone about to profane the temple, whom we took and would have judged according to our law. But the captain Lysias came, up, came upon us and with great violence took him away out of our hands commanding his accusers to come unto thee, by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things whereof we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, saying that these things were so. Verse 10, Then Paul, after that the governor, governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, For as much as I know that Thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation. I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Because that thou mayest understand that there are yet but twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship. And there are found with, I'm sorry, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city, neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just 
and unjust. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings, whereupon certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with multitude nor with tumult, who ought to have been here before thee and object if they had any ought against me. You see what he's saying? If they had something, they, ought to, they should have showed up. Where's the witnesses? All right, verse 20. Or else let these same hearsay, if they have found any evil doing in me, which while I stood before the council. Except it be for this one voice, that I cried standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question by you this day. And when Felix heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that way, he deferred them and said, When Lysias, the chief captain, shall come down, I will know the uttermost of your matter. And he commanded a centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty, and that he should forbid none of his acquaintance to minister or come unto him. And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, which was a Jewish he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he, in reference to Paul, as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, notice what happened, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time, when I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. He hoped also that money should have been given him of Paul, a bribe, that he might lose him. Wherefore, he sent for him the oftener and communed with him. But after two years, Procurius Festus came into Felix's room. In other words, he took his spot. And Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. When did faith in Christ become a crime? May God bless the reading of his word as you're seated tonight. We'll get into the message. God truly did arrange for Paul to be able to present the gospel before men and women alike with whom he would have not have been able to have access. And so last time that we were together in the book of Acts, we considered this truth that we witness while God works. We witness while God works. We just, if we're faithful to witness the gospel, the word of God, then God is faithful, I believe, to work behind the scenes to do what you and I cannot do, to open up doors that we cannot open, and then as we go through those doors and you or I present the gospel, then God does some work behind the scenes there in the person's heart that you and I can't affect. I believe that to be true. And so we saw that Lysias delivered Paul to Caesarea to virtually save Paul's life because of a conspiracy that came against Paul, 40 men who said, we'll take his life. And they went to the chief priest and asked that they might... Uh, cooperate with them and that they would ask Paul to come for further questioning and en route, then Paul would be apprehended by these 40 men, no doubt thrust through with a dagger. In fact, these uh, men were known, you know, for their daggers and, and such. And so they were basically a terrorist organization. And so they said, this is what we will do with Paul. Well, it just so happened that Paul's nephew overheard the conversation and came and told Paul about, about that. And Paul, in turn, told Lysias, and Lysias took action and sent him north to Caesarea. 
And there Paul would be for the span of two years. And so he is going to appear at this point in time before a man who I want to introduce to you tonight. We read his name. But I really want you to try to get some of the historical setting here, not just so that we can have good Bible knowledge and understanding, though we need to have that, but also so that we can understand how that you and I can be better witnesses for Jesus Christ in the public sector. Because this is a man of great means and resources and power and, and a position in this man named Felix. He was a governor. His name Felix means literally happy. That's just what his name means. I, it was reminded of this that Paul was preaching to this man whose name meant happy, the true way of happiness, because there are many who feign happiness who are not truly happy. And I believe that would describe this man named Felix. Felix was notorious for corruption, for cynicism, for cruelty. One uh, historian said that he reveled in cruelty and lust and wielded, this is what his comments were, an ancient historian said about this man Felix, he wielded the power of a king with the mind of a slave. He wielded the power of a king with the mind of a slave. So he was not a godly man, to say the least. We'll hear more about that here in a few moments. The Jews hired a hitman. The Jews hired a gunslinger, so to speak, if we were talking about the Old West. Uh, but really what it is here is they hired a lawyer, a man named Tertullius to seek legal action against Paul. Because just like in our day and time, if you're going to go to court, you better have a lawyer. Because even if you're in the right, a lawyer who is a great orator can take advantage of that situation, even though it's not right, can win the case just by knowing the ins and outs of court and being very articulate. And that's this man named Tertullius. He may or may not be a Jew. The record is not clear enough for us to come to that determination. The Jews didn't really matter or care, rather, whether he was a Jew or not, as long as he could win the case. And so here is this hired gun, so to speak, a legal authority who comes before the governor. Can you picture the scene in your mind as the governor is sitting there in his chair and judging this matter? Paul is there in the courtroom scene. Others on hand, members of the Sanhedrin, people are gathered together, watching as the proceedings are taking place. This man named Tertullius, uh, a lawyer uh, who's very articulate, it's referred to here as an orator. It's the word from which we get the word rhetoric. And so he's a man that's able to deliver with great, with great uh, ability. And he stands there before this man, Felix, and the first thing he does is flatter the man for three verses. He flatters him. In our Bibles, I mean, he flatters him and uh, is trying to get on his good side. And then he says, lest I be any more tedious to you, let me get right down to the point here. And so he says, we basically have a threefold case against this man named Paul. Number one, he's a pest. He's a pestilent fellow. Yep. Being a pest ought to be a crime. If Paul were guilty of that, then rightly so. But that's not what he was. He was accusing him, they were accusing him of being a pest to their society, causing their society problems. Now, I submit to you tonight, and I believe you know this from the Word of God, Paul was not being a pest to their society, but rather, by the preaching of the Word of God, of righteousness, judgment, and the temperance, and preaching Christ, he rather was trying to be a help to their society. 
And if somebody would embrace true biblical Christianity, it will cause them to be obedient to the government and the the laws of the land that are there to the point at which those laws do not violate true biblical principles and those things. But I'm telling you, Christ makes good citizens. The best citizens in the United States of America ought to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Godly individuals. And so, in any case, though, they say he's a pest. He's a pestilent fellow. On top of that, he's a ringleader of a sect, a dangerous sect, mind you, known as the Nazarenes. I mean, it's almost comical when you think about Peter and James and John. I mean, well, Peter, I mean, he cut a guy's ear off one time, but... Other than that, he's not a dangerous leader. This is not a terrorist organization. I mean, they're making it out to be such that they would be leading in a sedition that would overthrow the powers of Rome. He's a ringleader. Number three, he planned to profane the temple. There's a little bit of a um, backing away of the terminology that was previously used about Paul because... Previously, it was said, he's profaned the temple because he brought a Gentile in here. Here, the idea is more this. He had plans to profane the temple. You hear the, them backing up? You know why he's backing up? He doesn't have a case. He doesn't have witnesses. And Paul is going to point that out and actually win the case. So Tertullius here at this point then, he has no witnesses to call to the stand. And so he concludes his case, and all the Jews that are there, they give their assent that, yes, these things are right, but again, there was no witness that Paul did as was said. So then Paul comes to the stand. Now, it's interesting uh, that Felix, he doesn't say anything. It's like he just kind of motions and says, your turn to Paul. Paul takes the stand. Paul takes the main speaking area. He begins his defense with respect but not with flattery. He begins with respect because he had respect for the governor's position, but he did not try to flatter his person. He presented that he did not have time to form any type of a major riot since he'd only been there for 12 days. It's rather difficult, I would imagine, before the days of Internet and, and like, you know, everybody show up at this spot and have a, a mob, you know, a phone mob. I don't know, whatever that is. I've never been a part of one. I'm just simply saying, you know, in trying to organize something of this grand scale that they were accusing him of, like he's a ringleader of this sect of the Nazarenes. I mean, that would be a monumental task to get everybody organized and to have a real good ride. I mean, you could have a small one, but I mean, to have a real good one. So. So he says, I've only been here for 12 days. It's not quite the amount of time that you need to organize crime, like he's saying. I'm being accused of. He says, I did not come to Jerusalem to stir up trouble. I did not come to Jerusalem to cause problems. I came rather to worship. And thus there's no evidence of stirring, according to verse number 12. We could read, go back through and read all these verses, but I think that you're following along here and could see that in a, in a further reading. But he's just simply saying there's no evidence that I stirred up any trouble anywhere in the city. He said that there's no proof of accusations that were brought against him. He made it clear that the dispute, rather, was over matters of belief. Look again, at least at verse number 20, I'm sorry, at verse number 14 in chapter 24. But I confess unto thee, after the way, that the way, that would be a term that they use to describe Christians, which they call heresy, 
He's saying, listen, this is actually a dispute over religious beliefs. So worship I the God of my fathers, believing all the things that are written in the law and the prophets. Paul says this, I I believe the law and the prophets just like they do. Here's the difference. I accept Jesus as the Messiah, and I believe that he rose again from the dead, and that he'll save anybody that'll come to him, and I believe in the resurrection. And so that's, that's really what he says that it's all about, is that it's about the resurrection. So he says they begin to part ways in verse number 15 over the matter of the resurrection. There was a general belief in the resurrection at this point, at least by the Pharisees. They believed in a general resurrection of the just. I want you to look at the latter part of verse 15 again. Both of the just and unjust. Okay, now now let me get your attention here again. Paul is standing before this Roman governor who doesn't have a lot of Jewish background and Old Testament understanding. He underst- he, Paul knows that gathered here today also are some of the religious leaders of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, and so forth. And he's already used the resurrection, which, by the way, the whole book of Acts is centered around the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Have you noticed that? Every time, every, virtually every chapter, uh, it may be that I, we could go through and even see that every chapter in the book of Acts in some way has to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Because that is central to what we believe. It's not part of what we believe, but it's the very core of what we believe. And so Paul here says that I believe in the resurrection and Felix, I believe in the resurrection of the just and unjust. Now, why would that register with a man like Felix, who has maybe little to no religious beliefs or is open to everybody's beliefs? The reason that would hit him square between the eyes is this. He's an unjust man. And if there's no truth to these religious beliefs, even as an unjust man, he has absolutely nothing to worry about. But if... Jesus did rise from the dead, and if there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust, he's in a heap of trouble. And so Paul says boldly, respectfully, and yet boldly, he says, I believe in a resurrection of the just and the unjust. And so then Paul says in verse 16, and herein do I exercise myself. Everybody look at this now, verse 16. We're doing all right? Everybody following along? I don't need to start over. I haven't lost anybody. We're doing okay. Herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. You know what he's saying? He's saying, Felix, I know someday I'm going to stand before him. Because I, I believe in the resurrection and I believe that he's alive and I must give account to him. And that's why I want to live my life with a good, clear conscience that I'm serving him. And then he goes on in verse 17, and I'm not going to belabor all the points that are here or all the things that Paul is saying. He says, here's the intent of my trip to Jerusalem. It was not to start a riot, but rather it was to deliver an offering. I wanted to be a help. He said in verse number 18, it was the Jews that were from Asia that found him purified in the temple. His point is simply this. Why would I try to, if I was out to defile the temple, why would I take the time to purify myself? I would just come on in and 
defile the temple and bring a Gentile in. He's saying it doesn't make sense what their accusations are. And the case against them just simply does not add up. And if those Asian Jews really had a problem with this and they actually saw me in the temple with this Gentile, then let them speak now. But evidently they've gone back to Asia. And they have not showed up. You know the reason why people don't show up? When they don't have the truth. And so they didn't have any proof against Paul. There was none present, according to verse number 20, who had anything here that they could present against Paul that validated what Tertullus, as, as articulate as he was, he had no evidence, and thus Paul was in the clear. The only real issue, I come back to this now at this time, because Paul does in verse number 21, the only real issue was Paul's belief regarding the resurrection. Look at it again in verse number 21. It says, Except it be for this one voice, that I cried standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead. Now, Paul would have in his mind, no doubt, the future resurrection of the dead. But the future resurrection of the dead is based on the truth of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If he did not rise again, we really shouldn't be here tonight. But since he did rise from the dead, we have hope and we have reason to be here. We ought to take good heed to what we're hearing. Because someday you're going to stand before him. I said, someday you are going to stand before him and give an account for your words and actions and thoughts. You say, but I'm saved. Yes, but there would be a loss of reward and you'll stand someday at the judgment seat of Christ. Hey, I'm telling you, living for Christ is a very serious matter and you ought to have a clear conscience that you, you know that he is watching your life. Even if somebody around you tonight, listen, you could be a fake phony Christian right here at Southwest Baptist Church. Even your parents may not even know it, but God does. And Paul says because of the resurrection... I'm greatly concerned about how I live my life, and I want to live in a good conscience. Well, what do you think the Roman governor had to say about that? Well, we don't have to wonder. Look at verse number 22. And when Felix heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that way, he deferred them. You know what that means? He put it off. He said, okay, I've heard enough. You know what I'll do? Here's what. Now, this is, this is bogus. He says, uh, when Claudius Lysias gets here, I'll hear what he has to say about it. He didn't need Claudius Lysias. He knew that Claudius wasn't even going to show up. You know why? Because Claudius wrote him a letter. And in the letter, Claudius said, this man's not done anything worthy of death. He already knew. Does everybody get this tonight? He already knew what Claudius thought. He just used Claudius as a smokescreen because this man named Felix, although his name meant happy, he was not happy with where he was spiritually before God. He was under conviction and said, I'm just going to put this off a while. I'll wait and hear more about this when Claudius shows up. You ever deal with people and they change the subject? You're witnessing to him. I'll never forget, uh, back in Republic, I was witnessing to a man. Uh, the assistant pastor and I were out knocking doors and talking to a man who was working on his car. And I was trying to be mindful. I don't ever want to be a pest. 
but I want to come up and I want to talk to that man about his soul. And so I, I said, hey, um, I know you're busy, but could we have just a few minutes of your time? I want to invite you to church. And I began to go into an explanation and, and, and he listened for a little while. And then he said this, uh, you know, I, I don't want to be rude, but I, I need to go inside and get a sandwich. <laughs> I mean, it just seemed kind of random, you know, just uh, out there. But, but that's, that's how people respond when they're under conviction. A sandwich sounds a lot better than Christ. They're not thinking right. See. So Felix says, I'm going to postpone this. Now, he knew, Felix knew he did not have enough evidence to persecute Paul. To prosecute Paul. He knew that he did not have enough evidence to proceed. He really should at this point have said, this is not a legal matter. His beliefs, listen to this, his beliefs, his faith in Christ poses no problems to our society. They pose no problems to the laws of our land as Romans. None. It poses no problems. Under their government, they could continue to exist. But because he wanted to keep the advantage with the Jews, and he knew the Jews didn't want to let him go, then he kept Paul in custody. Now, I think his conscience was bothering him, and he at least allowed Paul to have all kinds of guests. That's what he did in verse number 23. All right, how about we move on to verse 24 here. It says that after certain days when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla. All right, everybody with me? Court case closed. Private meeting with Felix and Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewish, which was a Jewish, it says. He sent for Paul. I I just imagine in my mind, Drusilla having talked to her husband privately about that case, quizzed him about, well, what did he say about Christ? She was a Jewish. You know what that means? She at least had some understanding of the Old Testament. She was among the Herods. The Herods technically were not Jewish people, but they had a facade of Jewishism, being Jewish or Jewishness, rather, that was uh, very much to their advantage. And so, in any case, she would have understood some of the background as to the Old Testament. And I can just picture in my mind that she said to her husband, Felix, um, Hey, Felix, I'd like to hear what he had to say, just out of sheer curiosity. And so they sent for Paul, and it says, Heard him, look at it now in verse 24, They heard him concerning his faith, the faith in Christ, specifically for that reason, not the court case, not what was going on, but specifically about his faith in Christ. Now, this Drusilla, I know you want to know about her because this is some juicy gossip. Are you ready? But it's true. And if it's true, you just go ahead and say it, right? (laughs) Amen. I got an amen over here. I'm not asking who that came from. Now, I'm telling you, if, if this was uh, done in modern times, it's hitting tabloids, it's hitting mainline news, it's hitting television stations, it's for sure hitting Facebook. I'm telling you, it's going everywhere. 
What did you hear about Drusilla? Well, I heard, of course, that she was a very attractive young lady. She's born there in the Herod's family. Her daddy, you know, Herod Agrippa I. Yeah, the Herod Agrippa I, that was the one that killed James. Remember the brother to John? In Acts chapter 12, same one. That's her daddy that did that. Her brother Agrippa II, we'll meet him in a little while. But it was actually her brother Agrippa II who, when she was 14 years old, arranged her to be married to a man named... Azizus, A-Z-I-Z-U-S. I wouldn't want to marry somebody named that either. She didn't want to. Azizus, however you say his name. He was the king of Emesa. Never heard of it? I didn't figure. It's a small Syrian state. Well, she married him at age 15, 14, but she was very unhappy. Felix. He'd already been married to two women. He was on this. He was done with them. He was so struck with her beauty that he sent messengers and arranged, having heard out, heard about rather, that she was, you know, so unhappy in her arranged marriage at the age of 14, that he married her. He had her to leave her husband, and he married her at the age of 16. Now, I don't know how he was, but he's, uh, how old he was. He'd already been through two marriages, so this was his third marriage, her second marriage. She left her husband to marry this man. I'm telling you, that's tabloid-type stuff right there. Yeah. Josephus said that Felix promised to make her happy. So here's this young lady, attractive, prominent position, She's no longer in a Mesa, but now she's in Caesarea. Her famous husband, Felix, notorious, sure, but wealthy, absolutely. Well, she wanted to hear what this man had to say, and so they invited him in to speak of his faith in Christ. You know what Paul began to preach on? Righteousness. God has a holy standard. A a standard of morality at which you must live up to. Temperance. God expects that a man and a woman alike would be able to control their passions. And he didn't stop there. I'm thinking at this point, Drusilla was thinking, what did we do? And Felix was not enjoying the message either. And then he got down to it, having reason with them of righteousness, that God has a moral standard of temperance, that God expects that you would control your passions and not be controlled by your passions. And then he said this, that there's a judgment to come. There's a resurrection and there's a judgment to come. Listen, if there was just righteous standard that God had, and if there was his expectations that you would be temperate, and there was no judgment to come, then no big deal about how you live. But because there is a judgment to come, you'll give an account someday for what your decisions are. And the Bible says, when Felix heard that, he trembled. He was literally afraid. He 
was taking it in. He was realizing, I am a sinner. I am guilty before a holy and a righteous God. And my marriage to this woman that I've caused to make a, have adultery. And I'm in an adulterous marriage here in this situation. And I've been unrepentant about it. That God holds me accountable for temperance. And I have done. And there's a judgment to come. I'm telling you, the man was frightened. And he says, I'll call for you when I have a more convenient season. You know what he did? He was under conviction and he put it off again. It's a dangerous thing. When God reasons with you, when he reasons with me about righteousness and temperance and the judgment to come, it's a dangerous thing when he reasons with you in that way and you just shrug it off push it off and say, I'll hear another message about that and then I'll do something about it. I'll, I'll keep going here. Maybe nobody will find out about it. I'll, I'll just keep living the way that I'm living now and, and maybe it'll all just wash out. No, listen, my friend, if God reasons with you and he deals with you and that I believe he does through the word and through the spirit of God, then however it is that God is still to this day reasoning with you, pleading with you to repent of unrighteousness and intemperance because there is a judgment coming, then you you ought not to put it off for another day or another week or another hour, even for another moment. But you must reckon with God and say, dear God, I've been so wrong. I repent. I'm sorry. But don't say, I'll call for you when it's more convenient. It's never convenient to be righteous. It's never easy to be righteous, but it's always right. Felix trembled. Ironically, he even thought he might get a bribe from this man named Paul. Bribes were illegal, but here's an intemperate man hoping to get a little money from this man. What, what money would a Baptist preacher have? That's a good question. Well, he heard that maybe he'd taken up an offering, and so he had at least had friends who had money and could ask money. And he, had, I mean, the Bible said it. He said something along these lines. At least the Bible revealed his motive. I sure would like to get a little money, Paul, and if you gave me a little money, I'd let you go. He was hoping for a bribe. But instead of a bribe, he received a full-blown Bible message that condemned his marriage to his adulterous bride. Instead of a preacher that could be bought off, he was addressed by a bold messenger who fully believed and lived what he preached. Instead of a man who was confined, as he saw Paul there standing in chains, actually it was Felix the one who was actually in chains to his own sin and lust. Instead of a preacher who had lost hope of release, he heard from a preacher who consistently proclaimed the message of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and that someday we'll even be raptured out of this place. That's the man that he heard from and that's the man he needed to hear from. Because of the truth of the resurrection that you and I believe because it's in the Bible, regardless of the difficult situation in which you may be today, I'm saying to you, Paul was in a very difficult spot there. His life was on the line, but here's what he did in the midst of his difficult situation. He did not whine. He did not whimper. He did not back up. He only stood and respectfully and yet boldly proclaimed, Jesus has risen again, and he expects that you would live in righteousness and temperance and there's a judgment coming and he did all that and God was glorified because of it. 
His faith in Christ was not a crime. It was not going to impair or hurt the, the, the Roman Empire. Rather, it actually would help if they would have allowed for it. And yet that society then felt threatened by it. You know, you and I live in a society in which they think that this exclusive message of Christ and Him alone is an offense. Isn't that right? I mean, if you and I just held to, you know, it really doesn't matter what you believe, just believe whatever you want to. If we had that message, the world would just let us fit in everywhere. They have great tolerance for that, but they have no tolerance for somebody who says there's only one way to be saved. But I thought you were tolerant. I thought thought it didn't matter what people believed and everybody could just believe. Yeah, but you can believe anything you want to believe, but you can't believe that. You hear that? So that today, standing and saying the name of Christ can be offensive. And even laws are being brought to the courtrooms of our land saying things as silly as you can't have a nativity scene, you can't say the name of Christ at Christmas, you can't do this, you can't do that. And, and if you have a business and you make wedding cakes and somebody comes in and they're a homosexual and, and you believe that marriage is between one man and one woman, you have to sell them. I know that's your business, but listen, the government is saying it's a crime to stand for righteousness and morality. Those are some of the trends in the world in which we live. We have a story to tell to the nations, whether they want to hear it or not. I believe in doing so. We should follow the example of Paul, who stood there always in a respectful manner, but also in a great demonstration of boldness. And did not back down. We must proclaim the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to those who make Christianity a crime and to those who try to skirt the issue of their soul by trying to put it off for another day. And I believe today that a life that's centered around the truth of the resurrected Savior is respectfully bold, vocal. Tonight, I'm here to remind you that your faith in Christ is on trial. And because it's on trial, I believe you must have these two things in place. One, a firm and passionate or fervent belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you don't really believe that, You'll, you'll fail when you come under pressure. We all assent to that. But it is the resurrection that makes what we believe different from every false religion in the world. Because no other religion in the world, which ours is a relationship with the resurrected Savior, but all other religions of the world have no resurrected Savior and thus are not true. 
But since our faith is founded on the resurrected Savior, we can boldly stand and say in public universities, in public high schools, in public places of work, at the courthouse, and at the Capitol buildings, and all across our land, we can boldly stand and say in a respectful way, I believe God is right. I believe that he holds us to righteousness, that he expects temperance and, that the, temperance and that there is a judgment to come. And the reason I know all that is because Jesus rose again. You need to be firm in your belief about that. What if, what if tomorrow laws were passed that said it's illegal for you to name the name of Christ? Brother Brad prayed moments ago, thank you, God, for the liberty that we have to gather here with it in this building. What if tomorrow, I'm just speculating here, what if tomorrow the laws came down and they said, no more public gatherings of Christians, no more, what would you do? What would we do as Southwest Baptist Church, which means gathering in the name of the resurrected Savior? I say we ought still to meet. Be it secretly or be it openly. But the only way that we can have that type of a resolution and faith is if we have a firm belief that he is risen again. If you don't believe that, then you'll fall. And if I don't really believe that, I'll quit preaching and won't be living for the Lord and all those things. I'm telling you. But if you really believe that, that'll change your life. I believe that's, that is what changed these men's lives and that sent them everywhere. Paul was not, was not about to lose his life just because he had some kind of a religious experience that gave him a good feeling. No, it's because he saw and knew that Jesus was alive again. That makes the difference. If your Savior is alive, then you can go through anything. Now, you and I probably are not going to face this type of persecution. I don't think it's too far-fetched, especially as we watch as things are unfolding in our nation. I'm telling you, I used to hear preachers say that. You know, it may be that these things happen. And now I look at actually what is happening, and I think, oh, my soul, that was true. And if it was true then, then it's just going to accelerate. It's not like it's going to get any better. So do you have a firm belief in the resurrection? Paul did, and it changed his life, and it made him bold. Number two, because your faith in Christ is on trial. Is everybody listening to this? Because your faith in Christ is on trial, you need to live a godly life with a clear conscience. Why is that? Well, because your faith is on trial. People are looking at your faith, young person... And they're saying, they're passing judgment based on how you live for Christ. And young adults, in every age group in here, please just apply it to your life where you are. They are looking at you and they're asking, is Jesus really real in that young person's life? And they're going to come to some conclusions about who Christ and the church is based on how you're living. Well, that really is no problem if... You're really living what you say that you're living. But if what you're saying and what you're living are really two different things, that's a reproach to the name of Christ. 
Does that make sense? That means that what you say here in church ought to really be basically the same thing that you're saying in social media or by text or by calls or by one-on-one conversations. I, I believe the Word preaches it very clearly. God hates hypocrisy. And it's a blight on a church when there are people who act like they're living for Christ, but they're really not. So what do we do? Well, we need to get a bigger list of rules, right? And make sure that, you know, I mean, everybody's just like right in here and we have guards stationed. What do you think? And, and like get, um, you know, spyware to where... You know, some of our church leadership can know what families are talking about and how they're talking, you know, about the preacher and, and what they're watching on TV, you know. I mean, like, set up cameras in their home. Like, you know, come into the home and have a visit. Preacher comes, sits down, and while he's visiting, the rest of the staff's in, the, in their house planting cameras and stuff like that. I mean, that, okay, now this is all just coming to me, you know. I mean, it, is that what we need to do? Absolutely not. We don't need to assign monitors like a Gestapo that's going to say this person, that person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and we don't need to roll out a big old long list of rules. Really, it's quite simple. If you believe Jesus is risen again, you ought to love him with all your heart. And if you love him with all your heart and you're living for him, you don't need rules. <laughs> what do you say? Yeah, if, if you're loving the Lord, He'll lead you to do right even without a big old list of rules. You know, if I'm driving right, I don't even need the guardrails. I mean, I'm glad for the guardrails being there, but if I'm driving right, I don't, I don't really even need them. Isn't that making sense? You see, this, some say, well, this church's got all these rules, and they just keep growing something. Somebody else does something wrong, and then we've got to add another rule about that. And just Here they go, walls going up everywhere. I wish we didn't have to do that. And we wouldn't have to do that. And we're not in the business of trying to do that. Am I being clear? If everybody here would just say, you know, I believe Jesus has risen again, and he's coming again, and someday I'll, live, I'll stand before him and give an account for what I've said, done, and thought, and I'm going to live my life all out for him. That'll take care of it. Your faith's on trial. The world's passing a verdict on your life. What's the verdict? I pray they'd be like Felix and tremble. Not because you or I are any better than they, but because we realize, they realize through us just being a simple mouthpiece. Man, God's holding me accountable. And by your life testimony, they say, I don't know what all they have, but whatever it is, I want that. The ones that I know, and I've seen that, and I see some in this auditorium, and I see their walk with God, and I say, man, I want that. You know who they are? They're people who are real. And they believe in the resurrected Savior, and they love Him, and they've submitted their lives to Him. I look at their lives, and I say, that's what I want, that right there. When I'm 80 years old, that's how I want to be like that man. You with me? 
Thank you, Lord. For a man named Paul who believed the resurrection enough to take a bold, respectful stand. And I realize that sometimes we can be unkind and that's not right. We don't want that. But at the same time, I see here that Paul was very articulate. Paul was very thorough in his defense. And and I'm grateful that he lived in such a way that his life just defended itself. And I pray for the membership of Southwest Baptist Church because whether we're standing in a courtroom setting or not, our faith in Christ is on trial. We, of course, on one hand go through trials, but more so I'm thinking, Lord, that the world around us is is analyzing whether we really believe what we say we believe. And so I pray that you'd help us to be fully surrendered to you following the example of our Savior and, and your servant, Paul. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together tonight.